We are in James, beginning chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 this week. It was supposed to be 1 through 12, and then I got to 11 and said, too much, too much. We'll get back to it when I get back to vacation, from vacation. Uh, this is really in a contrast in a lot of ways to Psalm 133, which Dick read for us this morning. Uh, if one is a picture of great blessedness and joy and peace and refreshment, uh, James 4, anything but. Okay, Not a very pleasant, uh, comforting kind of passage for us this morning. Let us hear God's word, not from 1 Peter 4, as I have, but James 4. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, this is not a pleasant passage in the least. Uh, It digs deeper into the problems that we encounter on a daily basis. Help us to see the depths of grace that are found here, even as we explore the depths of sin. Help us to believe what you say, not just about us, but about yourself. To act upon what you say and to become a more humble community of faith. In the name of Jesus, who humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death upon a cross, we pray. Amen. Think about your last week. Okay? Think about what transpired in the past week. How many times were you in the midst of conflict either explicitly or implicitly. Because sometimes we know we're in disagreement with somebody, but it's not verbalized, it's not expressed, but we feel sort of that inner disconnect from that person. You know, we just want to avoid them, not talk to them. That's what this passage is about. There are times when I look to Amy and go, it's a James 4 kind of day. (laughs) We had that the other day at Walmart, you know, it was just, there was lots of crying and weeping and frustration on the parents' part. Not the crying, the frustration. <laughs> you know, <coughs> and it was just a James 4 day. 
And, and yesterday morning was a James 4 kind of morning where it just seemed like no matter what way I, I went, in whichever direction I turned, just something. There was a battle of the wills of some sort. There was some sort of desire that was not met. Even as I opened the refrigerator door to grip the peanut butter to put on my waffles that morning and said, where's the peanut butter? Lots of that stuff. I'm trying to clean things, and I have a, a child screaming for my assistance, and I'm like, can you hold on? It was a James 4 kind of day. We're all familiar with this. But we also often don't understand what's really going on in those James 4 moments. I think James 4 is one of the most foundational, instructive passages in all of Scripture. Maybe you think I'm crazy, but I don't think so. Because, precisely because conflict plagues our homes, our churches. And this gets to the, one of the root reasons of why. James, as we've kind of gone through him, has pointed to a number of reasons as to why. The, the, the idea of dead faith, the idea of worldly wisdom, uh, these various things. And, and it's funny because I was thinking as I'm going through James right now of progressive parallelism. And for those of you who like to read Revelation, you experience some progressive parallelism in, in Revelation. And I, I was thinking that, and then I went back to my exegesis paper on this passage that I wrote back in the mid-90s, and there was that phrase. I guess I'd thought this thought before. Okay? And so he's, he's looking at these conflicts from another vantage point. He's looked at a few already, and now he's looking at another one, one that really undoes us all. But the big idea, however, is good news and that is that God's grace is greater than our wayward wills. We've talked about the problem in our hearts. We talked about the problem in our minds last week. And now we're talking about the problem in our will. All of these have been affected by the fall in profound ways. But God's grace is sufficient for each of them. We start with the idea that the war of wills is worse than you think. Far worse than you think. James is writing to this church, and all the time it sort of has this idea that there's something not right at this church. You know, you get the idea that, okay, there's some favoritism going on, you know, that people are, are uh, trying to gain the favor of the rich, and they're looking down upon the poor. So you, you kind of get these ideas that something's not quite right. And here James just sort of opens the door and says, this is really what's wrong. This is how bad it is. He was alluding to it, but now he lays it upon the table, and he uses words like quarrels and fights, which literally refer to armed conflict or battles. They can be used figuratively as, yeah, figuratively as well to refer to strife and conflict within a community. The point here is that they are at each other's throats. It's the church, and they're at each other's throats. Let's not think, well, you know, maybe they were disagreeing with one another, but it probably didn't get physical, not the idea of armed conflict, not really a fist fight or anything. But I remember when I was in Winter Haven, and I heard of one church that had a deacon's meeting that ended up in a fist fight that flowed out of the church. You know, it's sort of like uh, those old news clips of uh, like the Taiwanese parliament or something, or the Japanese parliament where they just kind of throw down and they're jumping at each other and punching each other. It was kind of like that. In a church. How contrary to the grace of God that is. James says something that 
should take us aback a little bit. He, he says that there's even murder that was taking place. Now, that's tough. We could, we, could, we could spiritualize that and say, well, you know, just like Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder, and, and it, that's taking place, I'm sure. But let's not completely write off the idea of people pulling out swords and slicing each other down. Because remember, some of the disciples of Jesus were zealots. And zealots had no problem with settling quarrels with a knife. And some of them, though converted, were not completely sanctified. And so it's a theoretical possibility that some of those zealots in the first persecution left Jerusalem, found themselves in this church, and may have done things that shouldn't have happened. Imagine for a moment if a mobster came to Jesus and became a part of this congregation. How tempting it would be for him to follow the mob way of resolving a problem. So it's, it's possible. We're not, I'm not going to say it definitely happened, but it's possible that there may have been bloodshed in the church. Why is this taking place, according to James? He asked them this question. They probably went, like most kids, I don't know. The Bill Cosby brain damage syndrome happens again. So he, he lays it out on the line. He says, passions, desire. The first word, passions, really it's, it's the Greek word that we, from which we get hedonism, pleasure. It's the pursuit of pleasure that is taking place within the congregation. But it is a pursuit for pleasure that knows no bounds, and precisely it is the pursuit of pleasure apart from God. And so what happens is, is this person's pursuit of pleasure, peanut butter on my waffles, is blocked and so a quarrel breaks out, except it's not as pleasant as that, so that book we read and sing, who took the cookie from the cookie jar? You know, if you don't have kids, you don't understand. But some of you are about to have kids, and you will understand. <laughs> it wasn't pleasant like that. It was like, <laughs> my desire for pleasure blocked. Frustration erupts, Okay. The second word, desire, it's actually the, a verb, it's, it's, it's not a noun, but uh, they, they desire, and it has this idea of ultimate things. And so what happens is they have taken a good thing and made it an ultimate thing, which means it's high on their priority list. It has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, bad things are going to happen. Okay? It's sort of like Vancouver recently. They really wanted to win the Stanley Cup. And you don't have to follow hockey to know that they didn't win it because you heard about the riots that took place when they didn't. It got ugly in Vancouver when they didn't get their desires met. They were not satisfied. Okay, So they really want something and don't get it. This is not something that's particular to James. We find a parallel in First Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so there's an internal battle that flows out into an external battle because of these desires. Okay? 
not only is there conflict between the people, but James also points out that this has meant that there is basically no prayer. Because he says, you don't have because you don't ask. They're seeking to get this, that's why I say, apart from God. They're not asking God to provide for their needs, to provide for their desires. They're not bringing these things before the Lord and trusting Him to do that which is good and right in His eyes. They're saying, I want, I'm going to get. So they're not praying. They're not trusting in the goodness and kindness of God to to, uh, be their Father and provide for them. And so on the one hand, you have this group of people who aren't praying at all, but then he says, you ask, but you ask wrongly. How can you ask wrongly? That you might spend it on your desires. And so we were hard on Vancouver. Let's be hard on the Boston Bruins. They spent $156 in alcohol. Sorry, $156. That's nothing. Sorry, put 1000 after that. $156,000 in a bar tab in, in uh, Connecticut this past weekend celebrating their championship. Well, let's be fair to the Bruins. One, one part of that was a $110,000 bottle, bottle of champagne. So, so most of it was this one bottle of champagne. Okay? And it, like, their families were there and stuff. So it wasn't like, you know, just... But still, they spent it on their desires. And that's, that was the problem they, only, they were being very selfish in their prayers. That's why God did not answer them. And so their wills are all sort of out of whack. And as a result of this out of whackness, they're competing. They are actually warring with, with one another. And so there, there's no harmony on the horizontal level. They're at war with one another, not just at war within themselves, but among themselves. And that's when James brings out the big words. I read someone uh, in talking about the tongue, and they talked about harsh words, and all harsh words are wrong, and said, if they're wrong, then Jesus is in trouble. And, and if it's wrong, then James is in trouble, because he lays down some harsh words right here. Literally, the Greek is not... Where did I have it? Figures. You adulterous people, it's not that. It is you adulteresses. That's all it is. You adulteresses. James is drawing upon the Old Testament context of a people in covenant with God. And so it was understood, particularly in places like Hosea, that God was the husband and the people were the bride. Just as we now recognize Christ as the husband and the church as his bride. Okay, And so what was going on was that in pursuing everything apart from him, spiritual adultery was taking place. They're breaking the covenant with God. This is not just, I'm going to get my own way. This is covenant breaking that is taking place. And so that's why he speaks so harshly. So they're not only at odds with one another, but now they're also at odds with God. It's going this way too. Israel, in chasing other gods, forsook the one true living God, breaking that covenant. They broke this covenant, James says, by loving the world. The idea of friendship. The word 
that is there for friendship is the Greek word phylos, from which we have, it's one of those kinds of love. The love of a friend. And the love of a friend back then was probably, it's not like your Facebook friends, okay? Don't get that idea of your Facebook friends. This is the friend that you give everything to if he has need. Okay, there was, there was a covenant. It was a kind of covenant. It, think of Jonathan and David, right? Two men who would die for each other. Two men who promised good to each other. Okay, there was nothing that David had that he would not give to Jonathan, and there was nothing that Jonathan had that he would not give to David. Even he knew David was going to be king, and it was supposed to be Jonathan, and he didn't care. He loved his friend so much. That's friendship. That's the kind of friendship that this is talking about. That we're supposed to be friends with God, just like Abraham was friends with God, but we've become friends with the world, it says, when we do this. And so have made, them, made themselves enemies with God. You can't be friends with both. Which points to this idea of what he says, you double-minded. They were not only sinners, but they were double-minded. They had split their allegiance. It's something like this. I had this conversation with, with Jaden a little bit the other day. She was excited because she's going to a birthday party, and that, that was good. And she was like, oh, you can make some new friends there, Dad. And she thought of um, the mother of one of her friends. And I thought, well, you know what? I really don't need to be her friend. And trying to talk about the idea that, that mommy is my female best friend. She's my BFF, right? Okay. Amy. It makes no sense for me to have Amy as my wife, but another woman as my best female friend. She must be my best female friend. Similarly, you know, for guys, you know, this is the part of the problem. You, you can't say that you love your wife when you're pursuing pornography. Right? It's like you're trying to do both. You're double-minded. Your wife is God's gift for satisfaction of all of those things. Don't look for it somewhere else. Look for it where God has provided for it. So they're being double-minded. Those are pictures of double-mindedness. And so these seemingly simple conflicts are part of a far more serious spiritual problem. But there's good news. And that is that God desires us more than we desire our idols. Okay? If the war of wills is more serious, is worse than you think, God desires us more than we desire our, our idols. And now we come to really what's a, a big interpretive problem in this text. And it's an interpretive problem not, be precisely because the grammar is incredibly vague. And it could mean a couple of different things, too, to be precise, are the main ones. But he does say that this is, uh, make sure I get that quote. Do you not suppose it is for no reason or no purpose that the Scripture says? You're expecting a quotation from Scripture, aren't you? But what, he's, what he says is not a quotation from Scripture. He's summarizing. Okay, He's giving a, 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 a summary statement of what Scripture says. Okay? The confusion is reflected in a variety of translations. If you were to lay out four or five different translations of the Bible, you would see probably three to four different ways of putting this, what this thing that the Scripture says is. There are two main options, and both of them are essentially biblical if we understand that they're summary statements. 
And the first one, which is the one I had in my exegesis paper, um, or I supported in my exegesis paper, is that the spirit, lower S, so meaning our spirit, which dwells in us in cre- through creation, longs enviously. And so this, this translation and interpretation is stressing our covetousness. It's reflecting what James has just said up above. Okay? It's, it's a simple point, really, that as factories of idols, as Calvin called us, we set our hearts on everything but God. We think, life will be good if only I have. Life will be good if only I have the right spouse. Or life will be good if only I have the right job. Or life will be good if only I have the right car. Or the right house. Or the the latest Xbox. Or whatever it is. And yes, producers of technology take advantage of this covetous desire within you to always have the latest and the greatest. It's not enough to have... An iPod, you have to have the newest iPod with the greatest technology, right? Don't you? Don't, most, don't some of you feel that pull inside? Okay. I live in a cave when it comes to technology sometimes, so I don't feel that pull. But I live in that cave for a reason, because I feel that pull. <laughs> okay, I choose to be in that cave. Um, I choose not to get catalogs so that it doesn't, doesn't prompt my covetousness, okay? Um, I used to have lots of catalogs book catalogs, record catalogs, not close. Okay, but anyway, nonetheless, that's the idea there. The second way of, of, of interpreting this and translating this is the one that I, I lean toward now is that the spirit, capital S, which dwells in us, longs jealously. Okay, notice the difference between envy and jealousy. Envy typically is, is wanting that which someone else has. And that can, be, that's, that can be an aspect of jealousy, but I prefer, I prefer to use jealousy to say protecting that which you have. And so this is the idea of the spirit is longing to protect that which belongs to God, which is you. And so this points more to the second part of the text. It's sort of a hinge that brings us into the second part of the text. Okay? This is Hosea. God loved Israel. He desired Israel more than she desired other gods. We see that though initially God divorces Israel, He brings her back. He pursues her. He brings her to the wilderness to win her back. Okay? And so the idea of this is, yeah, you're pretty covetous, but God's zeal for you is greater than your zeal for other things. God's pursuit of you is going to be more profound and more powerful in your life than your pursuit of other things. And so it moves into that that very next sentence. It says, and that, that conjunction can go either an adversative but or a a conjoining one, and he gives more grace. And not just more grace. I like that. The word for more, mega. Don't you like that word? I remember the old monster movies, Megatron, the huge monster. 
mega grace. Not a little grace. Not, not even sufficient grace, which is good. Mega grace. It's like some of the, like, it's like, it's like the, the fries at Five Guys. It's not just a few fries. Man, you get a big thing of fries. You can't have them all by yourself. If you do, you gain 15 pounds in one sitting. At least I would. Okay? Mega, super abundant grace. And so while we believe in the reality of depravity, we're also supposed to believe in a God who was rich and generous in mercy and grace. And so which one should occupy more of our thinking? Which one should shape more of our hearts? If you're going to have worm theology, you're going to focus on the depravity, and the depravity is true. But we believe in grace. Just as true. More important. More God-glorifying. The abundance, the super abundance of grace. And it is now that he actually does quote Scripture. He quotes from Proverbs 3, and he says that God opposes or resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay? But grace is only for the humble. It's there. It's abundant. It's free for the humble. Proud doesn't think he needs that grace. He doesn't want that grace. He's going to try and do it on his own. And guess what God does? He says, no grace for you. Precisely because you don't want it. You don't think you need it. You're trying to white-knuckle it and gut it out yourself. Hope that works well for you. It's not. Because God will oppose you. He will resist you. And so while our spiritual problem is incredibly serious, God's remedy is more than sufficient. Which brings us to our last part. That gospel repentance seeks gospel promises. James here, you know, explains this idea of God gives grace to the humble. And he ties it because the last command that he gives has to do with humble yourself. And so all of this is a picture of what it means to humble yourself. He kind of just spits out all of these imperatives, all of these commands suddenly. It's, It's almost like they're falling out of his mouth. A whole series of them. But they describe what it means to be humble, particularly in light of our sin. But here's the catch. They also point to the idea that they, these people, and those of us who are like them, must be active in pursuing grace. Not passive in expecting grace. Catch the difference there. Expecting it, but you're not doing anything. Just kind of sitting there. Whereas actively pursuing through the means of grace that God has provided. Let's start with some of these commands that he gives. And and two of them right at the beginning are sort of two sides of the same coin. They work together. Submit to God and resist the devil. Okay? You will, your gospel repentance of submission and resistance takes place precisely because you believe the gospel promise that if you do this, the devil will flee from you. You stand against him. You set an order against him. Okay? But in order to do that, in order to stand against him, to resist him, you must first submit yourself 
to God. And that's, that, that is sort of this idea. This is a proper understanding of, of this submission because it's about allegiance. It is not, God, do what you want to do. That's not what's in line here. What is here is, God, I will do what you want me to do. It is the submission of your will through allegiance to say, I will obey you. Reflected in the idea that we see in um, Joshua saying, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's the idea. It's a commitment to obedience that is grounded in God's grace and, and seeks God's grace. trying to remember what I thought there. That's the, that's the joy of sometimes shorthand. Can't remember what I meant. Oh, well, let's move on. Um, not only that, but there's this, it, it touches this idea of ending the double-mindedness of that, well, you know, in this instance, I'm going to obey my will, and in this instance, I'm going to obey God's will, and in this instance, I'm going to obey my wife's will, or however it may play out for you. God's will. Ending the double-mindedness or triple-mindedness or quadruple-mindedness, however mindedness you may happen to be. Okay? It is ending this friendship with the world so that you can walk according to biblical convictions. The second series of commands is, well, it's one command on this time, draw near to God. With the promise that he will draw near to you. I think Calvin is right. He says that the reason that, that we are destitute of grace sometimes is that we have withdrawn from God, who is the fountain of all grace. And sometimes we ask for grace, but we don't seek God, which was the whole problem in, in Jeremiah chapter 2. They were looking for grace apart from God. And guess what? There is none. Seek him, he is saying. We must respond. Think about friendship for a moment. Since we're, this text is about friendship with God. How do you make friends? Do you sit at home and wait for them to call? <laughs> if you want to be someone's friend, do you wait for them to send you an email? Do you sit, or, sit there you know, at night just going, man, I wish they'd call. Or do you call? Do you send an email? Do you say, hey, what are you doing tonight? I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you and encourage you. Okay? That's how friendship happens. Right? And that's what, this is, that's what this is essentially saying. God's already left a couple messages on your voicemail. Pick up the phone and call them back. It's kind of the idea that is going here. Because he first loved us. We have this testimony. We know this thing. And God's saying, come on, pursue me. I've pursued you. Pursue me. I'll draw near. I won't be like someone else who's going to reject you. I'm going to come. I'm going to show up. Okay. Then moves to these ideas of cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. This can be understood. These are Celtic, uh, not Celtic, cultic, very different than Celtic, words. Okay? 
Cultic has to do with re- the, the religious practices that they, they did, but they also can have ethical meaning to them. And what I love is that the, the part of the ethical meaning of purify is the idea of dedication. Dedicating themselves, you double-minded, meaning forsake that double-mindedness. Dedicate yourselves to the Lord. But the idea of cleansing, how are we cleansed? Confessing our sins, right? Seeking the grace that is found in Christ. And so there's a break that, ha- that is being made through our confession and our dedication. Uh, the break is made with our pleasure-seeking and these ultimate things. And so then grace flows, Because what happens is grace won't flow if the channel is all clogged with me, 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 I want, all that stuff. Think about it this way. This is a nice air filter. Okay? What happens when your air conditioner filter looks like this? No air is coming through. No nice cold air is coming out. Of course, it still isn't coming out, but that's besides the point. <laughs> okay, this is what sin does to our hearts when we don't, when we're not confessing our sin on a regular basis. We're not receiving the, the cleansing that comes only through the blood of Christ. Our hearts get clogged. We get no grace because we're content in our sin. We're resisting the means of grace. So. Don't let your heart get like that. It's very bad. Very bad. So, um, then he says, be wretched or be miserable. Mourn and weep. These are not permanent. doesn't mean that we as Christians are supposed to be people who walk around all day going, I am such a wretched sinner. That's not what he's saying. But when you come up against your sinfulness, there should be a time in which you are miserable, you do mourn, you do weep in light of your condition. There are times where it's appropriate to pull aside and weep and mourn over your sin when you see how serious it is. The last one is humble yourself. A lowering of yourself, just as Jesus in Philippians 2, which I alluded to in our prayer, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing and became a servant or a slave, humbled himself and was obedient to death, to death on a cross. Okay? Jesus, though he was king of everything, made himself nothing, no one. Shouldn't we, who are sinners, instead of exalting ourselves, lower ourselves? But there's the gospel promise. He will exalt you in due time and in His way. We will be exalted, but it will be Him who is doing it. And so God encourages us with this promise of ultimate exaltation. The the, the now of of humility is not forever. So, <clears throat> James 4 makes sense of much of our lives, I think. 
passage we should go back to often. Our conflicts are not rooted in personalities, though they can make it worse. Our, our conflicts are not rooted in cultural differences, though they can make it worse. Ultimately, they're found in, they're rooted in our desires and our priorities, which end up being blocked by others. And when they're blocked by others, things get ugly. The answer is not Buddhism. Stop desiring. That's not the answer. The answer is grace, which pardons us, but also changes what we desire. So God and grace are are to be the defining factors in our life. And this grace begins to renew our wills so that our wills come and become submissive to God and say, I will do what you ask me to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that our sin is not ultimate. You are honest about our sin. And for those who are apart from Christ, it is ultimate because it results in their condemnation. But for those who are in Christ through faith, it is not ultimate. It can be prominent. It can be problematic. But it does not have the final, most important word. And that is because you do, in Christ, the living word. And that word is, my grace is sufficient. And so help us to throw ourselves upon your grace each day. Help us to submit ourselves to your will each day. Produce in us a greater allegiance to you as King Jesus subdues our wills by this power of the Spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, in whom we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen.